This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. What's the only weekly wrap up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode of This Week in FCPA, we take a look at the following stories. Big corruption trial and great lawyer gossip going on in London. Harry Casson revisits the FCPA Top 10. The GDPR turns three. Tom and Jonathan reflect on life with GDPR and Neil Hodge in Compliance Week. More antitrust troubling the world of chicken producers. What is the intersection of ESG and compliance? I explore that in several blog posts this week. How to lessen ransomware and extortionware attacks. The DFS finds a insurance company for data breach violations. Internal reporting is down. What does this mean? Caremark developments and the imperative of regular risk review by a board of directors. And what is bizarro malware? All this and more on This Week in FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor himself for This Week in FCPA, episode 254 for the week ending, May 28, 2021, the shaken, not stirred edition. As our thoughts turn towards Memorial Day and what it represents, we contemplate James Bond streaming on Amazon. Jay is podcasting now from a disclosed location, and we're back to take a look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories, which caught our collective eyes. Jay, what say ye? Uh, I, it appears that Amazon is buying 007 and the other films. So my question now is what happens to Paramount and Universal? Who's going to gobble them up next? Gobble, 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 gobble. The turkey edition is coming. I can feel it. <laughs> All right. Shall we just go ahead and hit it? Hit it hard, man. Go for it. All right. Well, um, our first story is a, just a deliciously gossipy lawyer lawsuit that uh, is occurring in London. Uh, the mining conglomerate giant ERC is suing its former lawyer and the serious fraud office. Uh, it, it, it's just, it's one of those stories, Jay, that if you had uh, written a screenplay on this, uh, probably couldn't have been sold because it would have been too implausible. But here's the story. Uh, ENRC has a lawyer who's going to do an internal investigation for him or the, for the company. And uh, that lawyer is um, David, or excuse me, Neil Gerard. 
Uh, Neil Gerard gives a fixed fee for the internal investigation. And we're now talking about 2010 timeframe. And he then uh, uses this asset of the internal investigation to move to another law firm called Decker. And uh, he negotiates a alleged $3 million or 3 million pound annual salary for a three-year period. Uh, he goes to Deckard and begins his internal investigation. Uh, three years later, when he was terminated for the internal investigation by ENRC, he's billed uh, some $18 million, uh, uh, or the Deckard firm has billed some $18 million. ENRC obviously is not very happy about these uh, costs. Uh, but then we move to really the, uh, the realm of the fantastic because uh, somehow the internal investigation that Mr. Gerard has done migrates its way to the serious fraud office in the guise or, uh, or as a self-disclosure. Uh, it's not clear uh, if this self-disclosure was authorized by ENRC. Nevertheless, uh, the serious fraud office gets uh, the internal investigation, including attorney-client privilege information, and then opens its own investigation uh, in the 2013 timeframe. There's still, still been no charges brought by the serious fraud office against ENRC. So ENRC files a civil lawsuit against the lawyer, uh, Neil Gerard, his firm, Decker, and the serious fraud office, uh, saying that um, somehow Gerard and the SFO conspired uh, to get this information. The uh, SFO says, au contraire, this was a self-disclosure. ENRC uh, may uh, rue the day they self-disclosed, but um, nevertheless, they properly self-disclosed, and we are not uh, party of any nefarious activity. The lawyer says that um, ENRC knew everything he was doing. So uh, the trial is scheduled to last for 11 weeks. It's in uh, High Court in London. Apparently, there's lots of juicy details about uh, billing rates, uh, people billing on the file that may or may not have been uh, part of the investigation, and uh, lawyers running amok, uh, and the serious fraud office uh, may get a black eye or may come out of this uh, smelling like a rose or somewhere in between. Uh, but ENRC has filed suit. Opening statements were this week, and we will. I will certainly be continuing it, and this week in FCPA will continue to follow it. So if you like a fantastical lawyer gossip, Jay, this is the story for you. Sounds really juicy, Tom. Uh, next up, we'll take our weekly check-in with the FCPA blog. Uh, Harry Casson is looking at the midpoint of this year and wants to know what's new on the FCPA top 10 list. There are now two banks on the current top 10 lists. Goldman Sachs is number one and SockGen is number 10. Telecom occupies four spots, the most of any industry group, and six of the top 10 cases date from 2018 or later. The oldest entry, aged very nicely since 2008, is Siemens' ground-making $800 million resolution that really doesn't cut it anymore. Five FCPA settlements have now reached a billion dollars or more, and it takes at least $585 million to even appear in the current top 10. 
here are the 10 biggest FCPA cases of all time based on penalties, disgorgements, and uh, assessments. Goldman Sachs uh, has the top spot at 3.3 billion from 2020. Airbus is 2.09 billion. Petrobras in Brazil is 1.78 billion from 2018. Uh, Sweden uh, makes the list with Ericsson, 1.06 billion from 2019. Another telecom, Tilia from Sweden, 1.01 billion, 2017. Uh, MTS Telecom from Russia, 850 million from 2019. Uh, Siemens, we've said before, 800 million at 2008. Vimplecom, another telecom uh, entrant from the Netherlands, 795 million in 2016. Alstom, France, 772 from 2014. And uh, rounding out the list is Sockgen from France, 585 million dollars. Uh, if you carried a link to the show notes, uh, we'll have a link going to the FCPA blog and it will have the top 10 list and then you can drill down on the companies. Back to you, Tom. Jay, our next uh, couple of stories uh, is really a happy birthday celebration. And that birthday is for GDPR, which had the third anniversary of its go live. Uh, Neil Hodge wrote an interesting piece in Compliance Week. Jonathan Armstrong and myself did uh, part one of a two-part podcast series on it uh, this week. Jonathan focused and I focused on two of the key aspects, the militancy and GDPR, civil filings, and the enforcement. Uh, Neil pointed out that we've had um, some uh, nearly 300 million pounds in fines over the past three years, 661 in enforcement actions, uh, which led to that uh, amount of money. Uh, some of the other things he uh, pointed out were uh, the regulators uh, have assessed fines, which have not all held up in court. And he raises a question of whether or not that um, hurts the credibility of the regulator when they propose a big fine and a company contests it under the GDPR contesting process and the fine is significantly reduced. There's also been an increased pressure to uh, police big tech. Uh, Europe is really leading the way in this, uh, I think, much more than the United States, although perhaps uh, with uh, the uh, ongoing uh, trial, the Epic Games trial against Amazon and uh, the lawsuit filed against Apple and the lawsuit filed by the District of Columbia against uh, Amazon, and I trust that we may have uh, some anti-competitive issues litigated in court there. And of course, uh, really, what's what's next for GDPR? Uh, Jonathan uh, thinks that the regulators will continue to mature in their thinking and their uh, enforcement actions going forward. So this has been one of the biggest legal changes over the past several years uh, with the uh, go live of GDPR and many companies are still struggling with how to comply with it. And that may be a challenge uh, going forward for some time. Jay. Thanks, Tom. Uh, next up, we're going to turn the spotlight over to Mike Volkov, our colleague from the Everything Compliance podcast. Mike's writing in his corruption, crime and compliance blog. And it's more antitrust is troubling the world of chicken producers. The Justice Department's criminal prosecution of the chicken producing industry 
took a significant turn. Step by step, the antitrust division is building a large and comprehensive criminal prosecution of of a significant cartel. Claxton Poultry Farms refused to plead guilty and cooperate in the antitrust division spalling criminal prosecution. Instead, Claxton Poultry Farms became the second producer to be charged and the first to be indicted rather than negotiate a deal. Claxton faces an uphill climb to escape these charges as corporations have a poor record of vindication, especially when prosecutors have indicated senior managers from Claxton and charged them individually with participating in the same criminal conspiracy. Pilgrim's Pride Corporation pled guilty to participating in the same conspiracy and agreed to pay over $100 million. Pilgrim's Pride is cooperating against its own executives involved in the conspiracy, as well as other execs from other companies. Tyson's Food is reportedly cooperating with the investigation and earned leniency protection for its initial disclosure of the the conspiracy to federal prosecutors. The Antitrust Division's criminal investigation became public in 2019. Three years after the Citilivics litigation involving alleged price fixing in the chicken industry. In June of 2019, the Antitrust Division revealed its investigation when it notified the Illinois court overseeing the multi district litigation to seek a partial discovery stay. In June 2020, the original indictment charged Pilgrim's Pride executives Jason Penn and Roger Austin, the sitting president and CEO, and the former vice president along with two other execs from Claxton. As outlined in detail in prior indictments against the 10 individuals, the defendants communicated not only by phone, text, and email, but they also coordinated bids to sell chicken products to purchase cooperatives, restaurants, and grocery chain stores. The indictment against the executives include detailed references to telephone calls and text messages used to carry out the price-fixing and bid-rigging scheme. The criminal case against the executives is currently scheduled for this August. Back to you, Tom. Jay, we have a couple of stories uh, around the intersection of ESG and compliance, which I suspect we'll be having a lot more of these stories. Uh, Matt Kelly uh, weighed in on the SEC comments around uh, ESG reporting and how that impacts compliance. I took a look at uh, a little bit more of a deep dive into what the role of the compliance function and the CCO is in the world of ESG. And, and Jay, really, I think that um, the compliance function and the CCO are most well-suited to lead the um, ESG corporate effort. Uh, certainly, the uh, regulators have made clear, the regulators, I mean, the Securities and Exchange Commission, have made clear, and as Matt pointed out, that they expect more robust reporting and there will be robust uh, SEC enforcement if the reporting is substandard. But the skills of a compliance professional really lend themselves to uh, heading ESG. We've had a couple of of pretty prominent uh, CCO types. Paige Motes at um, Dell moved over to become the head of global sustainability and Kim Yapchai, uh, the CCO at Tenneco, took on the additional role of uh, heading uh, our senior VP, chief environmental, social, and governance officer, uh, to, in addition to a role as the uh, CCO. And when you think about sort of the skills of a CCO, 
uh, or, or a compliance professional, they really lend themselves to uh, leading ESG. One of the most basic functions in compliance is due diligence, and that's something that uh, is going to be required in ESG. And, and it really boils down to how do you document, document, document your steps and your sustainability efforts, your environmental efforts. Uh, and then in governance, you uh, need to have a sustainable governance, governance approach that avoids predictable surprises of repeat compliance failures. And that's certainly something that every compliance practitioner uh, tries to achieve. And then really think about um, compliance is on the corporate edge of risk management. And while risk management has been traditionally seen as helping companies to avoid legal and compliance risk, it's really now seen much broader. And if you add on the business roundtable statement on the purpose of a corporation, uh, you now have uh, multiple stakeholders. So uh, if if the biggest risk is at reputational risk, you can see how the CCO compliance professional and a robust compliance program can help manage these risks going forward. So I really see uh, a lot for the compliance professional uh, in the realm of ESG, and it's something that I think we'll probably all be having to look at much more closely going forward. Jay? Totally agree with that, Tom. Uh, next up, we've got an article coming to us from Corporate Compliance Insights by Rob, and I hope I don't butcher his last name, Chevelle or Shavel. And uh, what he's going to be talking about is how to lessen extor- extortionware attacks. So this is especially timely in light of the recent colonial pipeline hack that we had. And uh, Rob talks about what organizations need to know about the growing cybersecurity threat. When hackers gained access to a system in the past, they really cared about the specific details within the data they encrypted or stole, but extortionware is changing that. Ransomware remains the fastest growing category of cybercrime. It occurs every 11 seconds and is responsible for a large part of the $6 trillion of damage that hackers will inflict alone. In 2020, incidences of ransomware grew by 458%, according to Bitdefender's 2020 Consumer Threat Landscape Report. What makes the ransomware distinct from past forms of corporate data breaches is that in its simplest form, the aim of ransomware is not to primarily steal data. Instead, ransomware encrypts data necessary for your ongoing operations and denies access to the victim, which can shut down a business indefinitely. Extortionware, meanwhile, combines elements from data theft and ransomware models. For cyber criminals using extortionware, any sensitive files or personal information about an employee extracted from the victim's server or found via other sources are now a valuable tool for either facilitating ransom payouts or demanding ongoing payments. Technology is making extortionware more available. While the concept of extortion and even cyber extortion is nothing new, the growth in this kind of attack mechanism is being driven by several factors. Highly capable strains are also accessible to more threat actors than ever. Thanks to the evolution of ransomware as a service, because threat actors can now effectively subscribe to ransomware providers similar to legitimate SaaS or SaaS business models, the availability of advanced malware has skyrocketed. So how do you defend against extortionware? 
with extortion we're making both technological defenses through its continued method of action, remediation efforts ultimately less likely to succeed against attacks. Organizations need to focus on hardening the human aspect of their cybersecurity approach. First, implement extortionware-focused cybersecurity training. Though the vast majority of the organizations carry out some form of security awareness training, studies show that about 40% of employees don't know what ransomware is, and almost 50% are oblivious about how do you respond to an attack. Create a culture of security. Besides training employees to avoid the threats like extortionware, effective human-based cybersecurity also means ensuring your organization's cultural responses to security issues is beneficial. This concept entails taking steps to increase openness and security within an organization and avoiding cover-up culture. Safe organizations take a proactive rather than a reactive approach to the employee's personal online security. As parts of the world emerge from COVID-19, financially motivated threat actors show no signs of slowing down their efforts to find new ways to maximize the chances of return, receiving a financial return. At the same time, despite record spending on cybersecurity, the human weakness as the heart of most organizations continues to grow vulnerable. Extortionware is the result of this paradox, and as long as employees form the most vulnerable part of an organization's defensive posture, the threat that the organization poses will keep climbing. To protect the organization effectively, organizations need to double their efforts to secure their most valuable resources, their employees' personal information. Back to you, Tom. So, Jay, we had another enforcement action from the state of New York Department of Financial Services, uh, and it involved First Unum Life Insurance Company and Paul Revere Life Insurance Company. And uh, First Unum had a hack, which they uh, investigated. They promptly reported to the DFS, and they instituted a uh, solution, which was multi-factor authentication. Uh, they subsequently had a second hack, and they determined that uh, the multi-factor authentication that they had implemented as part of the remediation from the first hack, and I should also note as required by uh, State of New York regulations, uh, was ineffective, and the hackers got around uh, the multi-factor authentication. The um, And then also first on them, certified to the Department of Financial Services that they had fully implemented an appropriate remediation, which, of course, was the multi-factor authentication. So uh, they were fined $1.8 million and really, I think, drove home some important lessons for every corporation, uh, not simply those that do business with uh, or, or, or rather are regulated by the DFSJ, because I think this is uh, the DFS is really leading the country in uh, data uh, security, data protection, uh, dialogue, regulations, and enforcement actions from the state level. And the multi-factor authentication is is just a basic remediation tool, and it's a basic tool to help stop uh, these types of hacks. So uh, in addition to those regulated by the DFS, and interestingly, these are insurance company cases, not financial services cases, but uh, the DFS also regulates insurance companies. So that's how First Unum uh, got into uh, hot water with the DFS. But 
I think compliance practitioners need to study these. They need to take a look at the DFS regulations because they lay out the framework for a data protection uh, compliance program. And if a regulator is going to come knocking from your state or if you have a hack and you get sued, if you utilize the basic format required by the DFS, at least you've got a defensible starting point. So an interesting case, uh, certainly uh, significant for those uh, financial services, banks, and insurance companies regulated by the DFS. But also, I think it has broader application that I hope our uh, compliance colleagues will study going forward. So next up, Tom, we've got an article from Navix Global's Risk and Compliance Matters blog. This is written by Andrew Burt. And uh, internal reporting is down. What does that mean for your compliance program? This year, Navix Global's annual incident management benchmark report delivered a remarkable finding. For the first time in the history of the study, the median number of internal reports declined from 1.4 reports per 100 employees to 2019, from 2019, to 1.3 reports in 2020. So what does this number mean for your organization? That's a difficult question, especially in a year as dynamic as 2021. The simple answer is that there is no simple answer and that it means something different to every organization. So here are three questions you should ask to get an idea of where your company stands. Given these differences, it's important to consider key variables when applying the latest benchmarking data to your own internal report volumes. Begin by asking the following questions. Number one, how did your report volume change over time? Look at your percentage of total report volumes on a month-to-month basis. What changes do you see? Knowing how your reporting changed over time can help you separate the signal from pandemic-related noise. Number two, How does your reporting compare to industry peers? According to Gartner, 88% of organizations worldwide mandated or encouraged all their employees to work from home. However, employees in some businesses, including those in healthcare, manufacturing, transportation, and warehousing, weren't able to work remotely. These organizations generally saw their report volumes increase, even as business overall saw them drop. And three, How does your reporting vary by category? Also important when reviewing your incident management performance is to examine your reports by allegation category. Fewer reports do not necessarily mean fewer incidents. Even after placing your report volume in the proper context, assessing its impact and implications can be difficult. Too often, the default interpretation of declining report volumes is uncritically positive that fewer reports mean fewer incidents. Experienced compliance professionals understand that that is not necessarily the case. In fact, recent studies indicate the reverse is true. This is especially important in light of the most recent reporting from the SEC. In its 2020 report to Congress, the SEC confirmed its Office of the Whistleblower received 6,911 tips in the last financial year a 33% increase from fiscal year 2019. Those tips resulted in record-setting awards paid out to the largest number of whistleblowers in the program's history. These unprecedented highs in external reporting should give caution to anyone inclined to believe that the lower report volumes we saw in 2020 were the result of fewer incidents. In fact, 
the most this most likely means that the compliance programs will have to work even harder to encourage employees to speak up. This year's benchmarking gives some valuable insights into how you can equip your incident management program to best capture reporting. Don't know where to start? Try by one. Track all sources. Year after year, Navix consistently sees organizations that track reporting from all sources, including open door and manager submissions, see higher median and report volumes than those that only track the web and the hotline. Second, leverage non-hotline reporting. Over the past several years, Navix has witnessed a steady decline in the percentage of reports received via traditional hotlines. Web reporting, in contrast, now comprises a plurality of all reporting. Make sure your employers are aware of and comfortable with all the ways in which they can report problems, including and especially your online system. Ultimately, this year's benchmark data validates what compliance professionals have always known, that providing a robust and trusted incident management function is foundational to successful program. By examining your report volumes across time, type, and industry, compliance can better evaluate their own performance and identify potential blind spots, helping to ensure not just regulatory compliance, but business excellence. Back to you, John. So, Jay, we have uh, another article about Caremark, and this comes to us from the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance, uh, with a short piece by William Sabat, a partner at Wachtell Lipton. And he reiterates the growing trend in Delaware uh, around Caremark cases. And, of course, this is the case that established boards must have uh, an oversight of a compliance program. That's been certainly uh, expanded and uh, reinterpreted, uh, or at least a refocus, uh, most recently or most notably, I should say, on the Bluebell case. But he talks about a case, a uh, recent case called NISource, where shareholders sued over a pipeline explosion, claiming that the board missed numerous red flags uh, over this, and there was really bad faith oversight failures. The, the key is, in Jay, in Delaware, there's an early discovery process and an early dismissal process so that uh, the facts can get in front of the court quickly. And if there's at least a, a cognizable claim that can get to trial, the court will not throw it out. If, if not, the court will throw it out. And that ends the matter. If you're a plaintiff's lawyer and you get past this initial motion for summary judgment or motion to dismiss, Almost always the case is settled because boards and companies don't want uh, bad information to, to get out through uh, more rigorous discovery. So it can be quite an expensive and early expensive proposition for boards if they fail to have the uh, motion or rather the claim dismissed. And uh, this is a, a growing trend. We've seen several cases. I've written about several cases, starting with Bluebell and coming forward. And uh, boards need to wake up, and boards have uh, a real obligation for oversight. They need to take care to institute uh, oversight of their compliance program and open to my heart to document such regular reviews um, uh, from the board perspective. They should also have a, a board seat or a compliance expert, rather, on the board who can really lead those efforts for the board, and they should have a compliance committee. So uh, once again, 
We now have state law claims in Delaware, where most corporations are registered, that really force boards to, to do their duty and fulfill their obligation of oversight of a compliance program. And I would anticipate, Jay, we will continue to see these cases. And as these cases survive, these early motions to dismiss, we'll probably see uh, more settlements uh, with larger dollar amounts. You want to take us home on our last story of the day, Jay? Sure. This comes to us through the always intriguing Dipping Through Geometries blog by good friend of the podcast, Jonathan Rush. And the title is Bizarro Malware Expanding Reach to European and South American Banks. Over the last several years, Brazil has continued to maintain its reputation as a hotspot for cybercrime. According to the APWG, there were 48,137 recorded phishing attacks in 2020, a nearly 100% increase over 2019. Recently, a leading cybersecurity firm, Kaspersky Labs reported that new banking malware that originated in Brazil called Bizarro is targeting 70 banks in Argentina, Chile, France, Germany, Italy, Portugal, and Spain. In brief, Bizarro is a banking trojan that is distributed when email users click on links and spam emails. Among other features, Bizarro creates a backdoor, a secret portal allowing remote access to the computer that Kapersky reports contains more than 100 commands, and most of them are used to display fake pop-up messages to users. Some of them are even trying to mimic online banking systems. In addition, Bizarro is using affiliates or recruiting money mules to operationalize their attacks, doing the cash out or simply helping with translations. Information security and financial crime officers in financial institutions, and not just in Europe and South America, should take note of these details regarding Bizarro and incorporate them into the internal briefings and training on cybercrime trends. While Kaspersky reports highlighted Bizarro's expansion into Europe and South America, it is more than conceivable that the group behind Bizarro will eventually try to expand their reach to financial institutions in North America and Asia as well. If it has the will and skill to find money mules and translators who can write in Spanish and other European languages, it may adopt the same approach to find accomplices sufficiently fluent in English or Asian languages. So, Tom, I'm going to throw you a softball here. Uh, which former... Uh, uh, which former person who used to write questions for the DOJ about FCPA went to divinity school? Can you answer that question? I can. Okay, take it. And that person, that person is Wei Chen. And I learned that in uh, taking, uh, interviewing her for this week's episode of the Compliance Handbook. Uh, uh, so she was a practicing pastor for a period of time which I did not know. Uh, it is a fascinating interview with Wei Chen. We really focused on uh, her perspective of the evolution of compliance enforcement and compliance programs. It, it was just a ton of fun. Uh, she's, a, uh, she's one of the top people in compliance, and, and I think we all owe her a huge debt of gratitude, Jay, for her work. When she was uh, the compliance counsel for the Department of Justice, she really elevated the CCO and the compliance function 
the rigorous enforcement, and of course, the original uh, evaluation of corporate compliance programs document that she led the preparation of back in uh, 2017. So uh, check out Wei Chen and uh, check out the Compliance Handbook. Uh, it ties, of course, to the Compliance Handbook Second Edition. I spoke to my publisher today, LexisNexis, and we're aiming for a late June uh, delivery date. So you can order your copies. I'll have much more information about that as we move along. But Jay, I've got a couple of other uh, kind of cool podcasts coming out. Uh, today premiered uh, Compliance Man. Yes, uh, Tim Bajanov, uh, Kashinov Batarov is back with Compliance Man. We have a 10-episode season. This season is true or false. And we explore a, a really a basic compliance question, but from the emerging markets perspective. Tim has worked for nearly 20 years in Russia, Asia, and in other countries that are classified as emerging markets. So his perspective on compliance might be a little bit different than yours and mine, Jay. Uh, they're short, pretty uh, succinct uh, episodes. They're going to be uh, premiering every Friday. Uh, so today was the uh, episode one, uh, and we take a look, at, or we took a look at uh, whistleblowers and how they're perceived. So. Uh, if you can't get out of the ivory tower, check out Compliance Man to learn about compliance and, and emerging markets. One of my personal favorites, Trekking Through Compliance, uh, premieres June 1. And this is a series where I go through all 79 episodes of TOS, Star Trek, the original series. Uh, it will go out each day, and uh, it's a short, sort of uh, 8 to 10 minutes. I summarize each episode, and I give you three key uh, compliance, leadership, or governance lessons uh, from that episode. It's a ton of fun to do, a lot of work, but it's still a ton of fun because, you know, Jay, I have to rewatch every episode, much to my wife's consternation. So check out uh, Trekking Through Compliance, uh, set phasers to compliance starting June 1. Uh, any so the, uh, webinars you want to tell us about? Yeah, we've got something interesting coming uh, from K2 Integrity, and this is going to be on June 9th. And you're going to hear from a team of experts who discuss the benefits of taking a holistic and programmatic approach to preventing, detecting, responding to, and remediating in insider threats. So uh, in the show notes, there's some more information on this webinar, and there's a link to sign up. And as Tom earlier told you that as the date comes more into focus, when the Compliance Handbook second edition will be available for presale, we have a special code for our listeners, FOX25, F-O-X-25. And if you follow the links in the show notes, you will be able to pre-purchase your Compliance Handbook second edition, and you will also get a 25% discount. So uh, that's what I've got on my end. Uh, if you'd like to reach Tom, he is the voice of compliance, and he can be reached at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. And I'm always his sidekick, Jay Rosen, a.k.a. Mr. Monitor. And you can reach me at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. So as Tom said in the show open, uh, we're going to have a long Memorial Day weekend, and I hope everyone takes this opportunity uh, to think about the freedoms that we enjoy here in this country and uh, to think about what we've been through on the last year or so. Enjoy the long weekend, and we'll get back into compliance next week. So uh, for this week in FCPA, episode 254, for the week ending May 28, 2021, 
We have just given you the Shaken Not Stirred edition. We hope you join us next week when we take a look at this week in FCPA. Have a great long weekend. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can reach Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can reach me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you will join Jay and I again next week where we take up some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories, talk about upcoming webinars, and review key podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network, which premiered for the week. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.